This is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. Just within the hour, we talked with Governor Josh Green. He just wound up a daily briefing on the status of recovery efforts. We asked about the reassignment of the Water Commission Deputy Director, Kaleo Minuel, and the reports about a delay in releasing water to help fight the fires. The governor said he is well aware of the forecast for rain on Sunday and Monday and how that might impact the recovery of remains as so far, only 45% of the burnout area uh, has been covered as of this morning. The weather is, of course, a consideration. We do expect some rain this weekend, probably on Sunday, but the status of those storms, uh, Fernanda and Greg, at this moment don't pose a threat. We, of course, are racing against time to make sure that we do all that we can to recover our lost loved ones. They've now covered 45% of the territory, and some of that last percentage, once we get to about 80 or 85 percent, will be in buildings that are or were uh, three or four um, floors high. And so they'll be, we expect less exposed to weather, but there will be tragedy in those buildings. And so we're, we're doing all that we can. That's going to come well after this weekend. First on the ground, we now have, uh, last count, I believe we had 30 dogs. We may have got those last 10 dogs, 40 dogs to be on the team. The rescue team is now up to 195 personnel going about uh, on the ground. I will tell you this, the temperature of, of the ground itself is hot enough to affect the dogs, so they have to take lots of breaks. Uh, we have to be very thoughtful about that so they can uh, not, not be injured themselves and they can do the job to rescue or recover uh, our lost souls. So there's just a lot of considerations. You know, we are in a difficult time. You folks are immersed in this recovery phase. But with, you know, hurricane season, I don't know if your emergency management folks are looking at the threats any differently now, you know, given what we saw happen last week. We are, from the standpoint of, we are all in real time reviewing what it means to be in an era of extreme climate change and dried conditions. And that's why part of our comprehensive review, which I asked the Attorney General to take upon herself right off the bat, actually involves policy, policy questions about how to saturate the land with water to the best of our ability, how to have enough resource available. Now that there are many people that live in places that used to be much more barren, and what happens if there's a wildfire nearer to a community as opposed to where for example, I did my national health corps assignment, which was in Kau, where I was one of the only people living that far in that remote. Uh, so when a wildfire came, it could only affect one or two households, not, of course, the more than 2,400 or 2,500 structures that were ultimately destroyed um, by this fire. So, yes, we're in, in a time where we consider everything differently. We, of course, view fire hurricanes now as a reality. And I will be addressing all the people of Hawaii and the world tomorrow and making that point that things are different. That does not mean we couldn't have done other things to try to protect our loved ones. Of course, we'll look at everything. But we are now in an era where storms are stronger, winds are faster, and we have less in the way of water in many places. And that does mean that when we have hurricanes, we'll now always have to look at the wind speed, and we may have to deploy some additional water prevention uh, if it's dry season when we have a hurricane coming. So many things to consider, and that's going on in parallel with the relief effort to find our lost loved ones. And also, I've begun the process of looking at how we rebuild, at least to get the debris out and to deal with the environmental concerns. So I'm putting a, a, a formal or a practical moratorium on transactions so that none of the land can be stolen from our local families. My attorney general is working on that right now, too. So there's a lot of things all at once. But the most important thing is that we support one another and support those who have survived on Maui. We wrap our arms around them. We get them food and water and get them sheltered. We now have uh, 950 people in hotel rooms and over 500 people in Airbnbs, and we're decompressing the shelters to get people more comfortable uh, as we begin the morning process. Can we talk a second about mixed messages? You know, because with hurricane season, you know, and the back and forth and the finger pointing over, should we have used the um, emergency alert system, you know, or they are just for tsunamis or, you know, so there's a lot of uh, concern about that. And I just hope that we have a clear message going forward. Yes, I would say absolutely. 
we have to alert people if there's a tragic emergency coming. And I'll be just a regular person here. If I was sleeping in my bed and there was any emergency, whether it was a tsunami or a fire or a hurricane or an earthquake that was occurring, of course, I would want some form of alert. Uh, and that is obvious. We do also have to do all that we can to clarify things because historically, if you heard, and I was one of these people, if you heard a siren when you live near the shore, which is the case for Lahaina, the immediate thought is it is a tsunami go up uh, Malka and you know go up country. And in this case, that could have definitely led to even more loss of life. So uh, the clarity will come. If we do have a storm in the immediate future, you, you know, you can imagine that we will be si uh, sounding every alarm and then doing all the other additional communications. Uh, but there has been historically an expectation that that's what those sirens were for, mostly for tsunami. But I'm heartbroken that we didn't have the ability to, to get some warning out to people uh, so that they could escape a little faster. And then the mixed messaging on whether tourists should come or not, uh, it, it's very perplexing to watch the national coverage. You know, you mentioned that you've got 900 people in the hotels, 500 in Airbnbs. You know, I understand that the cruise lines are skipping uh, Maui. You don't need a thousand people descending on Lahaina, you know, looky-loose or, or whatever. Just They just need to be respectful. Yeah, let me be very clear. Uh, I, until at least September 1st, this is not the time to come at all to West Maui. But uh, in time, people are going to need to continue to come to Hawaii in general because this will provide work for those who are going to be paying for recovery. We'll be paying uh, to rebuild their lives. Many people on Maui rely on tourism, and so we'll find that balance. And we'll also encourage people to continue or perhaps move the travel over to Oahu or Big Island, Hawaii, other places in the interval. Uh, I'm going to leave some of the details to the Tourism Authority and to Mayor Bisson because they'll know better whether travel can be done to the Kihei area. But uh, let's, let's have a practical moment here. If you're on the mainland and you say, I'm taking a vacation to Maui, it's going to strike everyone as more than insensitive. It's going to sound cruel. And that's that's understandable and real. But in the in the coming months, we will want to send the message very clearly that people should still travel to Hawaii in general. And I'll be giving a statewide address tomorrow in prime time here across the state. And I'll be uh, addressing that amongst some of the other questions that you raised with me today about how we view storms and how we view our future as uh, residents of Hawaii and just um, members on this planet that have to be safer given where we are with climate change. And uh, HD is asking for a, a, a declaration so that they can access some funds. Where are you at on that? Yeah, I, I can absolutely support that. And I just authorized $30 million this morning. If you'll recall, the legislature had appropriated $200 million for me to utilize in the coming year. And those resources have had been spoken for up to about $170 million, so I still had $30 million to deploy, and I did it about 15 minutes ago, to expedite those those dollars for recovery for General Hara and others. So there is money uh, available, but I, I want to tell people there are a lot of things all happening at once, and I appreciate uh, both their understanding and their compassion. It is, uh, it is so traumatizing what's going on on Maui. I even went in to see all things, but to see the mortuary uh, yesterday, and so I wanted to get an understanding of what our recovery professionals were going through and what our firefighters had to see uh, regards regarding the loss of life. And it's unlike anything we've dealt with as a state before. Uh, and this will be the the pivotal point in our history of whether we get stronger and we can rebuild together, or whether we succumb to what often amounts to nonsense for those who are far away and just trying to cover the stories and feeling eager to get stories that they haven't yet really fully investigated. I have total respect for the press. I just want people to understand that we have to be responsible to what happened to our people, and that's why we're being cautious and careful. Unfortunately, the void gets filled with social media, and most of that is, is not worthy of comment. You did mention uh, the AG's uh, statement this morning about you know an independent review just on the procedures. Yeah. Uh, on that point, I know that there's been a reassignment 
of Kaleo um, Emanuel over at the Water Commission. Um, what do you want to say about that? Uh, I have a ton of respect for Kaleo. Uh, he's been redeployed to do other important work. I know people will uh, always try to read between the lines and point fingers. That's not what this is about. But everyone that is on this operation has to also not be uh, the source of controversy or conflict. And a lot of controversy and conflict is coming in around the response. And so we have people and work that can be done on many levels. And, and respectfully to him, that's the decision that the Attorney General and the DLNR director uh, chose to make. Um, I'm not going to impugn anyone and I'm not going to uh, blame anyone during this process. But sometimes these are important moments that people go and, uh, and do other things so that uh, their replacements or the other people in their uh, department have the full capacity to do what's necessary. And if we're arguing or fighting over an employee and whether or not they're fighting uh, press or other people, that's work that can't be done. That's yeah. uh, people that can't uh, go and do the work to, to do the recovery or to make the next water decision and so on. Yeah, it's a um, distraction. You don't be. need. And that, and that is not singular to him. I'm sure there this may happen in other cases, too. Uh, but I value our public workers so much and, of course, all the citizens that, you know, they chipped in in this response, too. All right. Well, we'll see what the investigation reveals and then uh, make changes uh, where necessary. But thank you and so much, Governor. One last thing, I, and I, I know it may sound simple, but it really I have not tasked anyone with doing an investigation. It is a comprehensive review because I'm not impugning anyone and I'm not blaming anyone. I'm saying that we have to look at policy and personnel and everything around this event. And so there can be time for other investigations and times when that's called for independently. It's totally okay. We will support everyone, those who were on the job, those who were in Maui, uh, and we appreciate the world uh, helping us. All right. Well, thank you, Governor, and uh, do get some rest. You bet. Aloha. And that was a conversation that we take with Governor Josh Green just within the hour. He will address media tomorrow evening with the latest update and to clarify the efforts underway to assess the risk uh, during this hurricane season. Support for HPR comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art. Now on view is Transformation, Modern Japanese Art, a look at a time when dramatic changes in society were reflected in the arts. HonoluluMuseum.org Each week, New Dimensions explores the social, political, scientific, environmental, and spiritual frontiers with some of today's foremost social innovators, thinkers, scientists, and creative artists. Hi, I'm Larry Brilliant, author of my memoir, Sometimes Brilliant. Next time on New Dimensions, I'll be talking about God, smallpox, and India. Sunday morning at 11. That controversial decision to reassign a Commission on Water Resource Management First Deputy Kaleo Manuel has triggered backlash from his supporters. HPR reporter Kuve Hirishi joins us this morning. Well, good morning, Catherine. Yes, Seaworm, uh, uh, Commission on Water Resource Management, Deputy Kaleo Manuel, has been in that position uh, since 2019 and the first Native Hawaiian to hold that position. He did raise some concerns during the uh, outbreak of the fire last Tuesday about uh, a private commercial water user diverting some of that water and whether that would jeopardize the availability of water for fire protection for the 70 uh, or uh, so Kuleana landowners in Kaua'ula Valley. Earth Justice Attorney Isaac Mori Wake is just horrified. Well, first of all, it's not clear whether this is legal because the Water Commission approves the deputy and the Water Commission should have the decision of whether they're going to get rid of uh, Mr. Manuel. But, you know, stepping back, it's just sad and, and disappointing to see a true public servant being treated like this in the public debate, and especially a private company trying to exploit a tough situation to try to gain that cheap advantage. I'm also 
looking for the leadership on the administration. What are they doing with this cryptic message, redeploying, whatever that means, Mr. Manuel, when he's supposed to be doing his job and he's needed more than ever? And so are they running away from the situation or have they bought in? I don't know what's worse. So I'd say many in the Native Hawaiian community and especially communities who have been for decades fighting for that restoration of Mauka Tumakai stream flow uh, seem to be activated on high alert at this point. Uh, Governor Josh Green's comments last week casting or earlier this week casting blame for the West Maui wildfires on those particular communities fighting to keep water in their streams also uh, seem to have infuriated uh, some in the community. Let's take a listen to those comments from Tuesday's presser. One thing that people need to understand, especially from far away, is there has been a great deal of water conflict on Maui for many years. It's important that we're honest about this. People have been fighting against the release of water to fight fires. I'll leave that to you to explore. We have a difficult time on Maui and other rural areas getting enough water for houses, for our people, for any response. But it's important we start being honest. There are currently people still fighting, still fighting in our state, giving us water access to fight and prepare for fires even as more storms arise. So what uh, Governor Green is referring to are, of course, uh, concerns raised by uh, Deputy Emanuel, as well as uh, Native Hawaiians residing in Kotwa'ula Valley there in West Maui, whose uh, only access to the water uh, for, among other things, fire protection is that stream that runs from Mauna Kalawai through Kotwa'ula Valley. Uh, there are no fire hydrants, we should say, in the valley. And prior to 2018, a Kaua'ula stream had been, more for more than 150 years, diverted by the town's largest sugar plantation, Pioneer Mill, and later its successor, the West Maui Land Company. So when uh, the fire broke out, uh, the state commission on water had asked that, you know, the West Maui Land Company check in with those downstream and uh, those who may be impacted by uh, the taking of more water upstream. University of Hawaii Law Professor Kapua Sprout, a Native Hawaiian water rights expert, had some pretty strong words herself for Governor Green. The audacity blaming stream restoration for what happened, brah. If Maui Komohana had been the Venice of the Pacific like it was, we wouldn't have had the wildfires to the extent that we did because having water in the stream from Makai cools that whole area, creates these riparian corridors. You know, we wouldn't have had all these dry invasive grasses. And yeah, you know, hindsight's always twenty twenty. So the point of us pontificating about this stuff isn't particularly helpful. For all the people who like no more food and are hungry and their houses burn down, but we need to learn the lessons for the future on a going forward basis, right? We cannot keep repeating the sins of the past, like tall already. The Venice of the Pacific, that's how British Captain George Vancouver described Lahaina during his visit in the 1790s. Uh, Lahaina was famed for its lush environment, for its natural and cultural resources, and for its abundance of water resources in particular. Everyone knows about Moku'ula and Mokuhinia, the famed island and fish pond where Ali'i resided and where they would sail in on their canoes, where the Declaration of Rights of 1839 and the Constitution was promulgated. You know, part of the reason this was the capital and the seat of governance and power was because of its abundance. But that is really something that happened in the past tense because it was these same plantations who sucked these water resources dry. Streams were diverted, groundwater was tapped through their skimming wells, and there were drought, there are drought conditions now exacerbated by climate change that only made things worse. So this is some of the, the cultural and, and historical context for the conversations being had both around uh, the uh, redeployment of, of uh, Water Commission Deputy uh, Manuel, but also in conversations about uh, water rights uh, advocates uh, wanting to uh, uh, sort of keep water in their streams, right? Yeah, and, and so you just really have to take a deep breath, step back. Right. You know, what will the facts uh, show uh, who said what exactly and, you know, how this all played out and they can figure out whose kuleana it is to move this, move this gentleman, you know, over somewhere else in the department, right. you know, and, and, and did you need to do that? Uh, did you need the emergency proclamation to do that? You know, whose kuleana it is? So lots of those questions I think will be answered hopefully when we, once we know the facts. Uh, but, I, you know, I recall when the last sugar plantation 
on the last harvest there on Maui. Mm, that was a concern by the county and the landowner, the developer, about the fire hazards and how we really had to work right. to remedy that and, and look at we are, where we are today. I, I think that review by the Attorney General will really uh, shed some light on, as you said, the facts uh, surrounding the decisions made in this situation. But again, our, our hearts and, and uh, our prayers are with those in West Maui. Yes. Thank you so much, Kuvehi. That was HPR's Kuvehi Hiraishi. Uh, to read her stories, go to hawaiipublicradio.org. Reality Check with Honolulu Civil Beat today looks at the latest woes for Hawaiian Electric Company. Editor Chad Blair on the line today. Good morning, Chad. Good morning, Catherine. Yes, so we understand that Hawaiian Electric uh, has reached out to some um, attorneys uh, or experts <laughs> about what they're, they may be facing. Yeah, this is a report from the Wall Street Journal that is in our story today uh, by Marcel Honoré and, and Jack Truesdale. And uh, they do mention the Wall Street Journal article saying that Hawaiian Electric has already been reaching out to firms. Uh, I don't know whether they're legal or otherwise, but uh, they could advise to get advice on, on financial restructuring. It's it's um, two parts here. The, the, the company faces not only a financial crisis uh, within the company itself, but of course, uh, having to get the power up and running uh, as they're trying right now. I just checked a recent report. It looks like upcountry pretty much. I hope it's back up. It's still uh, not necessarily the case there in West Maui. They are working on that. Uh, I believe something like 400 of the 750 power poles that they have in the West Maui area were damaged or destroyed. But yeah, these are very serious concerns and then you mentioned legal <laughs> you're absolutely right about that within days of the fire breaking out august the 8th uh, law firms uh, both from california and, and here in hawaii have filed lawsuits there's four that i know of so far uh, they are uh, raising allegations that hawaiian electric should have cut the power uh, to those power lines once they knew the fire or maybe even ahead of a time because of the winds uh, and if precedent holds, uh, if they are held liable, it could be an astonishing amount of money. Um, you remember what happened to uh, Pacific Gas and Electric back in 2018 in California. I, I believe there were 85 deaths in, in those fires. And I think it was 13.5 billion, billion beers and boy in damages. And the company did have to file for bankruptcy. Yes, and we did uh, watch one electric stock plunge. Mm. Yeah, for, by 40%. Uh, that's a shocking, a shocking drop. Uh, and then uh, the credit rating has been downgraded uh, to junk, if I'm reading that correctly. Of course, when there's video footage that's out there, uh, apparently from the morning of the blaze, uh, showing power lines dangling amid burning brush in the Lahaina Upland area, it gets people wondering, let's be clear here, we do not officially know uh, the cause of the the fires, what sparked it, um, but that is under investigation not only by the attorney general, who just said today it's going to take a couple months. You may have already reported that uh, for them to get that work done. But um, even Hawaiian Electric is saying the CEO over there, Shelly Kimura, she's saying they're going to conduct their own investigation into what happened, as well as uh, cooperate with uh, the state to find out what caused the fire. Yeah, and we saw at the press conference uh, earlier this week, you know, um, kind of deflecting uh, some of the questions uh, about the potential cause and, you know, you know, did we severely underestimate, you know, um, our ability to deal with these uh, invasive species, you know, the grasses, uh, and what are we doing to, you know, modernize our, our operations, uh, you know, right. when it comes and to smart fuses or, you know, uh, smart equipment that would minimize... Uh, you know, the threat of fire. Right. And Hawaiian Electric has, has already said that, you know, they needed power to help uh, the, the emergency responders in the area, like to pump water. They're not saying anything about the lawsuits right now. They're only saying that they're committed to the recovery in Maui. That is the, the main message that, that they are getting across. We should also mention that um, Maui County itself is also uh, named in at least one of those lawsuits. Uh, they may be uh, liable as well. Um, you know, another question that has been answered, and both Marcel and Jack did raise this in our story today, is that um, 
you know, what's going to happen to ratepayers? What's going to happen to you and me and anybody else that lives in Hawaii businesses as well? Uh, because what we saw happen in California is those rates did go up. Uh, and it, a number of them, the fire victims in the California incident, the 2018 fires, uh, were not, quote unquote, made whole until the company actually declared bankruptcy, freeing up that money, if you will. So so a lot of um, unclear elements as to uh, what is going to happen with these lawsuits. Uh, but meanwhile, again, the emphasis from Hawaiian Electric is on getting the power up and running on Maui, Yeah, at least in the areas where it's affected. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see what the regulators do, what the Public Utilities Commission does. And uh, I don't know, could they have done more to speed uh, the modernization plan up for HECO? Yeah, lots of questions uh, yet to yes. be resolved. But thank you so much, Chad. Thanks, Kathy. That was Editor Chad Blair with today's Reality Check. Uh, read that full story uh, by Marcel Henry and Jeff Truesdale. Head to civilbeat.org. Support for HPR comes from the Hawaii Community Foundation, committed to an equitable and thriving Hawaii, supporting initiatives such as affordable housing, fresh water, and the healthy development of young children. HawaiiCommunityFoundation.org. Today on The Daily, my colleague, Mike Schmidt, explains why a plea deal struck between the Department of Justice and Hunter Biden is increasingly pitting the interests of Hunter Biden against those of President Biden. I'm Michael Barbaro. That's today on The Daily from The New York Times. Beginning this afternoon at 1.30. Support for The Conversation comes from Skog Rasmussen, LLC, designing solutions for community engagement, project strategy, government relations, and grants services. Learn more at skograsmussen.com. Disaster has triggered fraud warnings this week by the Federal Bureau of Investigation as well as the State Attorney General's Office about potential scams linked to fundraising efforts. Under the state's emergency declaration, the Office of Consumer Protection has also issued a price freeze and rent freeze on Maui to avert price gouging. We talked to Mana Moriarty about the need for such action. If you have seen reports of, you know, the aftermath of disasters, Hurricane Katrina, for example, comes to mind, other natural disasters, many disasters have been covered pretty broadly, and we've become aware of situations where contractors or others are going door to door, and they are fly-by-night operators that are going to charge an arm and a leg, may not provide the services that people affected by the disaster need at the time. And it's just a bad situation. So we want the public to be aware that um, there there is that element out there that may seek to prey on people in an unfortunate situation. And so this covers all kinds of things, though. It, it is a very broad definition of what is covered by the price freeze. It, it includes commodities, and that's defined broadly to mean any good or service necessary for the health, safety, and welfare of the people within the designated emergency area. The definition generally includes materials, merchandise, supplies, equipment, or resources, and more specifically includes things consumers will likely need in an emergency like food, water, ice, gasoline, cooking fuel, batteries, generators, medical supplies, and construction materials. And so have you had any complaints? And we were just a little over a week out. At this time, I'm personally happy to say we've had just a handful, less than a handful of complaints at this time of potential price gouging activity. And we hope that situation continues. We hope people continue to respect um, the people of of, of Maui that have been affected by this situation and do not try and take advantage of them by charging increased prices for commodities that are essential to them. And you mentioned a rent freeze. A rent freeze also, that's right. A, A rent freeze is in effect for the island of Maui as well. That means the rents cannot be increased above levels that they were they were prior to the emergency. Um, this is an important provision. It's a far-ranging provision. 
and we encourage people who do have questions about the impact of the rent freeze to seek information and our landlord tenant information center is available to take calls uh, and we can also field email inquiries. Okay, so basically you folks are putting out these orders as a preemptive strike. You just want to let those bad characters know, don't try and price gouge and don't try and prey on people that may be in a, a rental situation because obviously, you know, rentals are going to be in high demand over there uh, on that island. Right. And I don't think this necessarily occurs all that often, but we do have reports sometimes um, Well, somebody will send in a picture of an item at your local grocery store and say, this is price gouging. Um, our investigators do need some more information to go on if we're going to make a determination that somebody is actually involved in a, a price gouging operation that is punishable at law. So we'd like you to be able to provide more information, such as what you think the pre-sales, pre-emergency price was, where exactly you bought this, uh, was the item on sale previously when you bought it. If you could provide that information uh, when you do report it, um, it would be very helpful. Of course, we understand that you're not um, people reporting this information are not always going to be able to uh, provide a detailed report. Okay. And then uh, on your website, you have what uh, frequently asked questions. So if folks have any concerns, they can kind of go to your website and, and, and check out, um, you know, what it is that you're looking for. We do have some information on our website. I know there was also some concern about predatory uh, real estate companies that were uh, approaching, you know, some of those families. What is it that your office uh, wants to say about that? At this point, the Office of Consumer Protection has not directly received any reports of these unsolicited offers to buy homes. We want people to be aware that there are protections available for owners of distressed properties, and distressed residential properties do have to meet a, a specific definition, a legal definition. But once the property is distressed, people who deal with the owner of a distressed property have to deal with them in written contracts and we would appreciate any reports of people who are not dealing in good faith or if there's a suspected violation of law we will certainly look into it and collect the information but again just to make sure that people know what they're dealing with this is such a tough time for so many people that a decision to sell your home even in the best of times is a really complicated and potentially emotional decision at this time, I can't imagine having to go through that calculation. Will I be able to provide for my family and myself in the coming months if I don't make this sale? There are resources out there available to displaced persons, and reports seem to indicate that most people involved in the tragedy or directly affected have applied to FEMA for federal disaster assistance that should help them get through this initial period. This initial period is the time where I think the bad actors may try to come out of the woodworks and take advantage of people by making offers that are well below what you could expect on the open market. So just a word of warning to everybody out there. And we have seen just in this past week, the FBI come out with a, a caution about scams. The state attorney general also as well, really on the lookout for just bad actors during this terrible time. Yeah, we have a big thank you goes out to all of our federal and state partners who have helped to put the word out to people to be cautious about bad actors and who continue to work day and night to help the victims um, that were affected directly by the Maui fires. And so, yeah, if there's any other word of warning that you want to give consumers out there when it comes to dealing with charities or organizations that are collecting for the victims? I think you want to be cautious about the information that you give out and in many cases, it will be very clear that when you're dealing with a government agency that's on the up and up because the agency has boots on the ground in Maui and you know people affected by the fires are going to be invited to attend in-person events. If you're approached in the street by somebody who claims to be with the government and cannot produce some form of identification, that should be a red flag. 
But thank you so much, Mana. We really appreciate you carving out time for us. Thank you, Catherine. That was Mana Moriarty, Executive Director with the Hawaii Office of Consumer Protection. He was talking about the price freeze on Maui on commodities and services, basically anything that consumers need. There is also a rent freeze in Maui uh, that is in place. Uh, Learn what is best to provide when reporting price gouging. Be cautious. Any government agent should show ID. Look for links for more information on the conversation page of our website later today. One of the first fire victims positively identified was a Maui musician. That has stirred many in the music community to unite for fundraising concerts. Proceeds from a Makahasan's uh, event at the Bishop Museum last weekend went to the cause. And this weekend, the Great Lawn will again play host to a Maui Ola concert featuring top Hawaiian entertainers and musicians. We talked to CEO DJ Mailer about that and the efforts that the museum has made to help its counterparts on the Valley Isle to salvage artifacts from the historic sites that burned last week. We have archaeologists at the museum and we have ethnologists at the museum. And so we wanted to know how we could kokua. And they said, yes, please, we would welcome your help at the right time. Because as we all know, it's not a safe place for anybody right now. So we're ready. We have already had a bunch of staff say we'll come. And then also we're sort of getting a space put aside for anything that we find there that Lahaina wants us to keep at the Bishop Museum because they've lost everything. So not only is it the older things that maybe were at the museum there or in a graveyard, but also it's the new things that we want to remember about Lahaina, and we want to make sure that we keep those memories there too. Okay, so, so we'll do that. Those details then need to be worked out. You yeah. know, just what do they have that needs protection that you can right. offer? Right, right. So that's what we're going to do, and so we're on standby to see when we can get down there. And I know that the the devastation by those wildfires, it was pretty intense. And, you know, we're hearing that with the remains that they really need to take time. And, you know, they're talking about DNA. And so, you know, if you need forensic archaeologists and, mm-hmm. you know, I don't know what kind of expertise you have in that field over there at the museum. We don't have human DNA labs, but we do have all of our animal labs. So we have the insect labs and it's a genetic laboratory. So I don't know, honestly, whether we could be of help to, you know, actually identifying people, but I do know that we can be of help to make sure that whatever is there that people want to save, that we can help with that. And that's what we intend to do. You know, we had a listener call in to say, we need to have people share their stories, the molodelo of, of Lahaina. You know, so we keep that history alive since so much is destroyed. Yes. In fact, our historian and curator, DeSoto Brown, he has been on it since the day it happened because people, the media was calling him. He was telling those stories to national media, as many as he could, so that people would know the beauty and the treasure of this place. Someone uh, called up and said, you know, the Siemens Museum, that was like a precursor to the public health hospitals. And so, you know, that kind of history is yes. so important to to spotlight. Yes, absolutely. And so that's exactly what he's doing. And he's already doing that work about other collections that we have as well now. So the beauty, you know, if it's serendipity, whatever we want to call it. But we have that capability of doing it now more than we ever had before. But as it relates to beyond Lahaina, we have 25 million pieces of collections, whether they be insects or bugs or birds or whatever, as well as all of our traditional and historical collections from our li'i and our many generations past. All of that has been kind of stored in different places at the museum, and very little of it has actually been digitized until now. So we're in the process through our Digital Futures Project of digitizing everything in the museum. And thank goodness, because a terrible lesson learned, but things do go away. And we, right now, are in the midst of doing fire suppression 
for the Bishop Museum. Well, I think when everybody saw the church burn there in uh, Paris, yeah. Notre Dame, it was just ghastly. And yeah. to think, what do we need to do to make sure we're resilient when it comes to fires? Do you have a new fire suppression system? What, what's the status of Okay. We knew we needed fire suppression. And so the state funded us this past year for operating funds as well as for capital improvement. Thank you, state because that's what we're using. We're using the capital improvement monies to do the fire suppression. We had to check for things like asbestos and stuff like that first before anybody went into walls and started to hook things up, but we're good. So that starts probably in February, as you can imagine. Someone with special skills has to come in and actually look at one, what kind of suppression? Water, foam, powder? And what's going to be best in terms of our collections, because our collections are paper and wood and cloth and tapa, all that. So those people are coming in, and by February, we should know what and how. And then what we have to do is move our collections, 25 million of them, into different parts of the museum so that we can get to those places that are the spots for fire suppression. It's going to be about a three- or four-month journey for us. But, oh, my gosh, thank goodness. I just can't even imagine. And so how soon will that work start? So the money has been released. We've been working on other projects. They gave us $10 million. So we've been working on other projects. And this, this particular one is going to happen probably in February or March. We'll begin that work. And we have been given till 2024 to finish that work. And this is the first time that the state has appropriated these kinds of funds? Correct. You know, I have to say, I did have the opportunity to go into your malacology department, and I saw our precious native snails, and some of them were being kept in bankers' boxes. And so, yeah, you, you do kind of wonder, you know, for these precious creatures, being in a cardboard box is maybe not the greatest thing when it comes to a fire. Exactly. It's better than being in their natural environment so right now, right? That's true, because you right? don't know what's left in the wild that yeah. may have been burned. Yeah. Yeah. When I first came back to the Bishop Museum, I went to malacology. And so because of the scientists there, I've learned a lot about snails. I never knew how precious they were to us in the islands. They're like our canaries in the gold mines. You know, it's like, ah. So here's the good news about those little boxes. We're actually going to be putting in what they call a snail rearing site, which is a giant cubicle with all of their precious branches and leaves, the things they love to eat, the kind of environment they like to be in, the kind of environment they like to reproduce in. And we will have that in our science museum so that children and family can come and see the snails actually growing, thriving. And once they get to a certain level of numbers in the population, then our team of scientists, as well as the interns that they are teaching as we speak, some of them are high school students. They're going back to those environments and replacing those snails so that we can see how they thrive. The facility won't be in the museum until about, I'm going to say, four or five months from now. And there will be a giant festival at that time, Kahuli Festival. Yes, Kahuli Festival during the Year of the Snail. That was DJ Mailer, CEO of the Bishop Museum, talking about what the museum is doing to protect its collections, including live snails, from fire. The museum stands ready to help the Lahaina Historic Property salvage artifacts from the fire. And again, this weekend is the Maui Ola Concert uh, at the Great Lawn. Look for links on the conversation page of our website. This Saturday, HPR presents Kailana. This in-person event is part of our HPR's Indie 808 performance series. Experience this exclusive set at our Atherton studio in Honolulu. Purchase your tickets online at hprtickets.org. Sponsored by Farm Lovers Markets. Former President Donald Trump faces his fourth indictment in four months, this time for trying to overturn the results of the 2020 presidential election in Georgia. It's much bigger than Watergate. Trump wanted to stay in office. He wanted to use Georgia to, as part of that plan. And so this is very different and much more troubling. I'm Deborah Becker. That's on the next On Point.
beginning this afternoon at 2 following the daily. Local chefs on Maui have joined forces with the Washington, D.C.-based nonprofit World Central Kitchen to make tens of thousands of free meals for those impacted by the recent fires on Maui. The organization was founded by Chef uh, Jose Andres in 2010 after helping with disaster relief in Haiti following a devastating earthquake. The Conversations Russell Subiano talked with John Torpy, the activation manager for World Central Kitchen, this morning. He and his team have been on the Valley Isle since last week, Wednesday. As of yesterday, we had fed about 36,000 meals since Wednesday evening when we got here. We're averaging anywhere between 6,000 and 6,300 meals per day, depending on the need. We calibrate that daily to make sure that you know we don't have a lot of food waste and that we're making sure that we're getting everybody fed in the community. And the, the meals, do people come to you to be able to eat the meals or do you distribute the meals out into neighborhoods? It's all of the above. We have three distribution sites and we have one mobile distribution sites. So we have our main distribution sites are in Lahaina, Kanapali, and Napili. And then we have a, the mobile distribution site going out and find people. And then from these main distribution sites, we have Jeeps, we have vans going out into the community. We have people that are taking carts into, into neighborhoods to try and find people. The great thing about, about what we're doing is it's, it's really kind of, it's locally run in a lot of cases. So we have a lot of, a lot of local people from the area that know where the, their aunties are, or their grandparents are, or their cousins are, or families. And they're able to, to really get out into the community, take these meals to these people and, and go door to door because there's a lot of people that wouldn't necessarily come out. They're worried. Some people are worried that if they, they're worried about looting. They're worried about, you know, not being able to get back. So we're coming to them and bringing them meals. And it's it's day after day. We're asking the people, hey, let, let us take care of you today. Um, can we come back tomorrow? Can we come back the next day? And we're doing that. We're doing that on a daily basis. Where are the meals being prepared? Are, are they at the community college there on Maui? Yeah, so we're at the University of Hawaii, Ma Maui campus. We're uh, collaborating with a, a group called Chef Hui which is a lot of really, really great chefs from the community. There's about 30 chefs overall that are, that are chipping in and making meals for us. And the, the university has been very kind to let us use their culinary college. It's a fully equipped kitchen. So we can really, um, we can really make a lot of meals with the, uh, with the support of, of chef, the Chef Hui organization. Really, really good meals. I'm glad to hear that it's been a collaboration with local and chefs from your organization as well. I think when most people think about emergency food relief, they're thinking the basics like a soup line or sandwiches. But judging by the photos on the social media pages, on, on World Central Kitchen social media pages, you're going the extra mile. Can you describe the kinds of meals that the chefs are preparing? You know, we do. We try to add a lot of variety. We have a lot of standards for the meals. We want to make sure there's, you know, it's, it's a hearty meal. It's got the protein. It's got the starch. Um, so... You know, some of the some of the meals they've talked about, they've made pork emo style is what I'm, is what I'm hearing from the from the chefs. We've had watermelon salads going out. We've had chicken, chicken curry. It's, it's just a wide variety of, of meals. And it, the, the really the really neat thing about this is it's chef run. So the chefs are, are making the menu. It's local chefs that are creating meals that feel that feel good to people. And that's, that's, that's our main goal is to make sure that, you know, when we hand out a hot nourishing meal to somebody, it's, it's something that is going to give them comfort. It's going to give them hope. It's, it's going to give them one less thing to worry about as they're, as they're, they're going to be doing this, as they're going to be rebuilding in the community. So hopefully we have one little small piece in that. Yeah. If there was ever a time for comfort food, it's right now, right? For sure. Yeah. What's the theory behind providing these meals? How does your organization feel it contributes to the response and recovery efforts? So we really act with the urgency of now. When there's a disaster, when there's an event, we want to make sure we get into the community as quickly as possible. We want to be on the ground. We want to be setting up a food network. We want to be working with local chefs. And we want to get food out into the community as quickly as possible. And it really goes back to that, that comfort, that letting people know that, hey, there's somebody looking after you. It's a little bit of hope and that we're going to be back day after day until we feel the recovery is in place. I'm glad you brought that up because I was just going to ask, you know, how long do you think your organization will be in Maui to help with these efforts? Is it pretty much until the job is done? 
I really haven't even started thinking about any kind of exit strategy. We're still ramping up. We're still finding need in the communities. We're working with a local producer here to set up a farmer's market to try and get more fresh produce into the communities, to get rice, to get oils, to get beans. As the power gets turned back on, as people start you know, getting back to it, it I don't want to say a sense of normalcy because that's that's just impossible at the moment. But getting back to where they, you know, we can help them maybe cook in their house, maybe prepare something, give them, give them that nourishment in, in produce. It's really hard to say how long we'll be here. I, I really haven't even started thinking about that yet. It's really just focusing on taking care of the community right now. Can you share again where and when people on Maui can get these meals that your organization is providing? In closing, I really want to thank the local community because without them, this, this doesn't happen. Without the people going door to door, without the great chefs in, in Chef Hui that are cooking the meals for us, that are you know up at six o'clock, in bed by ten o'clock. I mean, these are long days, and, and I can't say enough about all of the community support going on. You know, World Central Kitchen is we're an NGO. We're privately funded by donations, so you know it's it's individuals that are just contributing to to this effort. So it's it takes a lot of people to make this happen. If anybody is interested in helping out, you know, we're at wck.org. Feel free to join the webpage. There's lots of great content. You'll be able to keep up with what we're doing. You'll be able to see the pictures of what's happening here. And, and again, this doesn't happen without, without the community. And I can't say enough about how open, how welcoming people are to working, to getting food out into the communities, to really kind of making sure that there's a little bit of hope and help with the community here. Thanks so much for your time, John Torpy. Really appreciate you being there in Maui, helping our friends and family out there. Thank you, man. Thanks, Russell. Appreciate it. That was Rural Central Kitchen's John Torpy talking with HBR's Russell Subiono. We'll have a link to more information about Rural Central Kitchen and photos of their work on Maui on the conversation page of our website later today. does it for us we are out of time up tomorrow we hear from the state insurance commissioner what does this welfare mean for future rates got questions you uh, about something you heard on our show call the talkback line 808-792-8217 email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org want to listen back to something else uh, find the conversation podcast on spotify apple or anywhere else you tune in i'm Catherine cruz join us tomorrow for more of the conversation 